I owe it to really two guys, Steve Goldstein and Fred Jacobs. So you hang out um, with some really good company, man. Brad Bedford, well, <laughs> Steve Goldstein, Fred Jacobs. Yeah, it's like the Mount Rushmore of American radio. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Ben's Town President Dave Chachi Dennis loves radio and all of his radio friends. Hey, Chachi. Hey, everybody. Because Chachi loves everybody. <laughs> I'm very excited to uh, welcome our next guest. He is the Chief Insights Officer for Cumulus Media slash Westwood One and the President of the Audio Active Group. As the Chief Insights Officer for Cumulus Media and Westwood One, Pierre leads their Audio Active Group, a media and creative advisory service. Pierre works with brands and agencies to craft targeting and measurement solutions. The Audio Active Group is a full-service advisory offering media planning recommendations, creative best practices, and measurement services. And I have to say, before I officially welcome Pierre to the podcast, that he is one of the brightest guys that I have ever met. And he is not only, I think, a fantastic asset for Cumulus and Westwood One, but for the industry as a whole. And we'll get into that more when I when I bring him on. But I think the articles that he publishes and the research that he puts out there is so good for the industry. And I'm really grateful for really flying the flag of the radio industry and the podcast space as well. So please welcome Pierre Bouvard. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us, man. It's really nice to have you. And I want to get into, and we'll we'll, uh, get there in a minute, but uh, you're joining us from the brand new Westwood One Digs uh, in downtown New York, correct? Yeah, we're uh, at the southern tip uh, in the financial district right on the water with Statue of Liberty views. And uh, it's really nice to be in an office that just came out of a, a sales meeting where we had 20 people in a room. So it's really great to get um, back into an office and hanging out with people. Well, that, that's amazing. I cannot wait for a tour to check it out, but I've heard nothing but great things about the new space. Tell me a little bit about growing up uh, in the Boston suburbs. So a lot of exciting radio. Uh, you know, we had the booming top 40 station war with WRKO and F105, which was uh, it brought top 40 to the FM dial. And then, of course, Kiss 108. I interned in uh, Boston radio at a news talk station where I went to high school, the River School, which was a, a private school. They had a little 10-watt radio station. So I had radio in the blood uh, basically from, from high school on. What got you first interested? Just the uh, uh, RKO or F105, or did you have family in in media? Uh, I didn't have family in media, but you know, when I was in second grade and first communion gift was a little transistor radio, and I was hooked. And I just loved, you know, listening to the stations. And um, you know, when I went to high school, we had this radio station. I basically lived in this uh, ten watt radio station through all of high school. That's fantastic. And you actually worked at the high school station as well? Yes. Probably I was in the station more, I think, sometimes than I was in the classes. It was, uh, <laughs> you know, a uh, high school station. We had kids from Wellesley High on as well. And, um, you know, it was a lot of fun. We got record service. So labels, oh, no way. Would, ser- labels would service us because, you know, in the 70s and 80s, uh, college radio broke a lot of acts and broke, sure. uh, you know, Bands that were imports that you know became big parts of uh, of the format. So uh, so it was a lot of fun. At that point, did you know? Did you want to be on the air? Did you like programming, or were you just kind of feeling it all out? 
I was feeling it all out. Um, I think when I started at WITS as an intern, I got exposed to the sales department. I started getting involved in call-out research projects. And so I started getting the research bug. And then when I went to uh, college in Chicago at Northwestern, I started interning at WCFL. I really started getting interested in the research side. And by the end of my college experience, I was interning at Arbitron. And so that's really where I got thrown into the pool and really understood the importance of audience measurement and how it drove revenue. And I think that internship really kind of sealed the deal in terms of my interest in radio and uh, audience research. I'm curious about your parents. Were they uh, teachers? Were they on the are they into research themselves? Or have you always just been kind of driven and attracted to research and uh, in gathering, collecting data? So my dad is a software engineer. Um, he was with Honeywell, and then he was with a bunch of startups. My mom was a teacher, a uh, college professor at Regis College. And I think from my dad, I got you know the kind of the analytical side. And then from my mom, I got the teacher side. And my first real job out of college with Arbitron was a training job where I would basically travel and train sales folks on understanding and using Arbitron. And so I really drew from my the professor that my mom was and how to keep folks engaged and how to explain things in a fun and easy way. So I definitely drew from, you know, kind of both of their uh, experiences, you know, my dad on the analytics side and my mom on the teaching side. Sure. Sounds like a, a good childhood and education was something important. You mentioned you went to Northwestern, which is an incredibly prestigious school. I'm assuming you got pretty good grades. I did okay. You know, again, I got sucked into the radio station. So I, <laughs> w, WNUR uh, was a major force in progressive rock in the 70s and 80s. And, uh, you know, a lot of Chicago commercial radio, the rock stations were very corporate and, you know, we had some incredibly bright people uh, on our station, Bob Orlowski and uh, uh, Mike Lev, a number of folks that really had an ear for imports and kind of the new sound, new wave that was coming on. And uh, we were kind of besides XRT, we were kind of the home for a lot of the new rock. So it was a, a lot of fun to be with. Sure. And, uh, I spent a ton of time <laughs> at, at the radio station. Must, as well. I mean, what an exciting time, musically speaking, to be at a radio station and to be in a major market radio station. Not a lot of people get that kind of opportunity to start in a top 10 market and to work with, you know, heritage call letters like that. Yeah, no, it, it was a lot of fun. And uh, we were non commercial, but, you know, we, you, we were aggressive fundraisers and uh, our sports team that really did a great job with underwriting and, and getting the our sports broadcasts paid for. So I got to see kind of the content side and, and the kind of sales and marketing side as well. At that point, and you're obviously really early in your career, so you may not have been able to really recognize the difference, but could you explain today kind of the difference of working at a non-com versus a traditional commercial radio station that you and I have now spent most of our careers in? Yeah, you know, I think at the time, um, each personality, each talent on the station was pulling their music. So there was a music meeting where, you know, kind of the new albums, you know, were explained to us. So we were sure to pull from some of that. But 
each talent was, you know, kind of pulling their own music, which of course, you know, in the world of commercial radio, you know, that's insanity. Sure. Um, and the other thing is the station was block programs. So we had, you know, rock by day, we had jazz by night, we had R&B overnight, you know, there was a strong news and public affairs presence. So it was definitely much more eclectic. And then the 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. time slot was called Freeform, which was literally anything goes. Um, so it was a very- What a blast. Eclectic. Yeah, it was yeah. very eclectic. And and obviously, a lot of folks loved the station. And then over the weekends, we had a reggae block on Sunday afternoon with this personality named Eric Hewitt, the Gemini Prince. And that was a huge show in Chicago, you know, in the uh, in the community. So it was very eclectic. Were you on the air? Did you have any uh, shifts yourself? I did. I did a progressive rock air quote shift. Um, you know, one 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 of the morning. You got one three hour shift. So that was that was a lot of fun. How cool! And, Do you have uh, any uh, any air checks by any chance? Oh my god! I hope they've all been destroyed <laughs> and burned. Incredibly embarrassing. Um, I'm sure they're I'm sure they're great. I've got a bunch of my air checks. I just digitized them a few years ago, and I listen back every now and then, and it uh, it makes me cringe. But at the same time, it was such an amazing time. I mean, I really look back at those years uh, as some of the best of my life. Musically speaking, what what kind of music do you gravitate towards? So I am a uh, – I'm pretty eclectic. So I love Top 40. And um, so that's probably the music format I listen to the most. But definitely you will find me playing big band and kind of the classic American songbook uh, from time to time uh, as well as kind of classic rock. And, uh, I'm, you know, big into podcasts and, uh, sure. you know, spoken word content as well. That's great. You are very eclectic. And, uh, I find this all, by the way, very flattered that you've, you've joined me on the show. Cause I've just got so much respect for your brain. And I know a lot, well, I feel like I know a lot about your brain cause I read so many of your, uh, uh articles, but I'm really excited to learn more about you a as a person. So, uh, it's uh, good to know that you're such an eclectic person, uh, musically and, uh, creatively speaking. How did you make the leap, uh, from radio, terrestrial radio to Arbitron? Did you, was there an ad or what made you decide to apply there? Yeah. So, um, Probably one of the most famous guys in radio is a guy named Brad Bedford. And Brad has a Rolodex, you know, that is bar none. And he met me my freshman year at Northwestern. And we just happened to be passing in the hallway and somebody introduced us. And um, he found out I, I was into radio. And then literally three years later, he hunts me down and says, uh, uh, I have an internship at Arbitron this summer and I was going into my senior year. So that was my first experience with Arbitron. I ended up continuing to work there part-time all through my senior year at Northwestern. And then literally went, my first job out of school was in San Francisco at their, at Arbitron's office there as a trainer. So wow. I literally went actually first to Arbitron you know, which continued for another 10 or so years. And then I ended up with John Coleman doing uh, programming research and, and having a huge amount of fun with that. Sure. Ended up hold on, I'm going to slow you down because yeah. you're, you're, you're yeah. jumping ahead. So you pick up, you move, go to Chicago, now to San Francisco. What kind of change is that for you? 
Well, it's San Francisco, you know, so um, KFRC was like the big top 40 station there, very rhythmic, and that was so much fun. Uh, And I traveled a lot. So I traveled the Northwest for Arbitron uh, training sales folks on understanding and using the data. So it was a ton of travel, which was a lot of fun. And when you say that you were going into markets and you were teaching AEs to basically take that data and to be able to effectively sell it to local advertisers, local agencies? Correct. Correct. And, you know, helping them understand what's the difference between an average quarter hour and a QM and a rating and a share. And we were also getting into qualitative at the time. So we were uh, we had a qualitative service and there were, you know, early days of Maximizer kind of software that was called Arbitron Information on Demand. So it was teaching folks how to pull uh, reports uh, from that. Fascinating. And you would go in and be in a market for a few days at a time, go home, and then the next week travel into a different market. You were on the yep. road a significant yep. amount of time. Did you enjoy being that road warrior? It was awesome. You yeah. Know, because you get to meet people in the industry you know, at a very young age, people are pulling me in, in, into my their office and tell me what's going on in the market. So for somebody that loves an industry, working at a Nielsen or an Arbitron, you get, I mean, literally you get to meet just about every broadcaster in sure. every market. So it was very cool. And back to Brad, and I love Brad, by the way, such a great guy. And I didn't realize that you guys were uh, that you guys were connected that way. And he was so instrumental in your career. When yep. he reached out to you and said, "Hey, I've got this great opportunity," did you even really have an understanding at that point of what Arbitron was all about, or you were just I like, did. "I'll take it"? No, <laughs> no, I and I did, and I'll tell you why. Because when I interned at WITS uh, during my high school years, this trade publication called Inside Radio was floating around the radio station, and so. I subscribed to it and it was the first piece of mail I got at Northwestern. And so, you know, for four years, you're reading Inside Radio every week. You're seeing the rankings. They used to put out a a ranking book twice a year showing like, you know. So I was pretty familiar with Arbitron and the audience data and obviously how much people studied it and agonized over it. And, And so when Brad called me with the internship opportunity, I was like pretty excited because I was like, you know, that's what I've been reading for the last four years. Sure. So you are already pretty, uh, pretty hip to how it all worked. You are absolutely, because I think when I first started and I look back at it, I understood ratings in a very vague fashion. I didn't really know the details of it. I was much more focused on, I want to be on the air. I want to be a programmer. And it wasn't really until I got uh, I think here to LA where I started to really focus on ratings and really not even till I was a programmer, then it was like, wow, I got to take this really seriously. And then kind of dug in a lot deeper and tried to learn as much as I possibly could. But it's interesting to me how very early on that you gravitated to that and understood it so clearly, because it is relatively, at least in my mind, pretty complex. It is very complex. And interning at Arbitron it's like a medical residency, you know, you kind of get thrown into it and you get asked a lot of questions. So that really helped me kind of get under the hood on the methodology and understand how to make the numbers work. And they were, as an intern, I was, they were very generous with the training and they would take me on meetings with stations. Um, So I kind of got to experience the good and the bad and the ugly of when, you know, how stations react sometimes to the data. And they also sent me to training sessions that they were, you know, putting their uh, sales folks through. So I kind of really got a good indoctrination. 
When I went to Israel, this is back when I was the program director of uh, KBIG here in Los Angeles, uh, 2005, 2006, something like that. My father took me to Israel and we went to the Western Wall and you can actually put little pieces of paper into the wall itself and they're really wishes that you want to, <laughs> to, to happen. And so I actually took the Arbitron logo <laughs> and I printed it out and I stuck the logo into the Western Wall. I've got a picture. I'll send it to you. It's hilarious. <laughs> it didn't really work out for me, but... <laughs> <laughs> but I did do that, honest to God. So from San Francisco, you're working now and you're training account executives and sales managers traveling. And then from there, you go to New York or to Dallas on behalf so of So I go to New York as a salesperson. So now instead of being a trainer, I'm now you know responsible for markets. And I had New York State and Pennsylvania, and you're calling on radio stations, you're renewing their arbitron contracts but what i found was it was very much like the training job because you're really spending most of the time helping stations drive revenue answering questions from their programmers so it was kind of a continuation of that teaching training thing and i did that for a couple of years and then uh, got to run an office for arbitron in dallas um, so i got to see a whole other set of markets in the south and then after that, I went on to, to go work with John Coleman. Wow. So you were at Arbitron, what, for maybe about 10 years, something like that? Yeah, it was, yeah, about 10 years for the first tour of duty. Sure. Um, okay. And then you went- uh, I w- went with John. All right. So tell me a little bit about working for John Coleman and how did that come to be? So uh, I owe it to really two guys, Steve Goldstein and Fred Jacobs. So You hang out uh, with some really good company, man. Brad Bedford, well, <laughs> Steve Goldstein, Fred Jacobs. Yeah, it's like the Mount Rushmore of American radio, I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, um, so Steve invited me to, to speak at a Saga manager's meeting. And at the time, I was doing a presentation called Beyond Cosper Point about selling reach and frequency, not Cosper Point. And John needed a number two person at his company. And, uh, you know, Fred had seen me at the Saga meeting and said, you know, John, there's this wacky guy at Arbitron. (laughs) Uh, You ought to talk to this wacky guy. So uh, thanks to Fred and Steve, I met up with John. And, uh, you know, next thing you knew, he's sending me like perceptual studies, like data tables, 300 pages long, asking me to like, write a report as a, uh, you know, as a test, which was incredibly daunting. <laughs> and then listen to a whole bunch of focus group tapes and write a report based on the focus groups. Oh my, and this is before he gave you the job. This yeah, was part this of the- is like, okay, kid, let's, let's see how you can do it. You know, taking, you know, audience perceptual data, focus group tapes, and like turn it into recommendations and conclusions. So I, I guess I passed, uh, I stumbled my way through that. And then the next four or five years was some of the funnest times I've ever had because it was working with, you know, the most respected, the most, you know, biggest radio stations in America across all sorts of formats, you know, doing call out and music testing and, and perceptual studies, flipping formats and and I want to dive into a couple, uh, Power 106 and Hot 97. But before there, and we do have some listeners, almost all of them are radio centric and you know completely get what we're talking about. But if you wouldn't mind just giving a little bit of background on Coleman Insights and specifically what Coleman did or does for the industry. Sure. So, um, you know, the, the 
number one lesson of radio is that perceptions and awareness drive behavior. So the more people are aware of a radio station and the more people understand what that radio station specializes in, you know, it's like the oldie station or the classic rock station, the more people are likely to listen to that station. And so what Coleman does of a couple of things they do is they measure the awareness and the perceptions of people in a market. And, and that data really helps programmers understand how well known their station is, how well understood their station is. And that awareness and knowledge of the station really what drives the cume of the station. The other thing they do is they test music. So that's either older songs or newer songs. And if you play songs that kind of fit the station, that are popular, that are kind of compatible with the core sound, ratings go up. So it, it really gave me like an NBA in marketing. Sure. And the clients that you were working with at that point were just, I mean, it didn't get any bigger. Talk to me a little bit about uh, just launching Power 106 and then Hot 97. I mean, two iconic brands. Sure. So Power 106 was a incredibly successful dance station that launched in, in the mid 80s and was incredibly successful. And by the time the early 90s started to come around, it was starting to see some little bit of erosion. They had a you know, a core audience of female Hispanics and their core sound was kind of like sweet sensation, you know, these, um, you know, kind of Hispanic girl groups. We did a focus group of our core demo teens, female Hispanic teens. And in the, in the focus group, this is the early nineties, you know, we talked about the sound of power 106 and they said, well, you know, that's played out. And it's like, Oh, so in the focus group, we asked, so, you know, if you don't like that kind of dance sound, what, what kind of sound do you like? Now, this is the early 90s, and they said hip hop. And playing the good focus group moderator, I'm like, well, explain to me, like, well, what is that? And they said, it's rap you can dance to. So the focus group ends, and uh, I go back behind the glass, and we had a very famous urban radio consultant who in a big booming voice said, what the hell's hip hop? <laughs> and I look at Rick Cummings and Rick Cummings looks at me and we're like, uh-oh, there is, <laughs> there, there is something going on. And this is what focus groups are great at because you would never know to ask about hip hop in a questionnaire without first doing the focus group. And we obviously did a lot of research after that, and we realized that there's this new sound that is unifying Hispanics, African-Americans, and Caucasians called hip-hop. And it was like taking off like a rocket ship. And so subsequently, power flipped uh, to hip-hop. A couple years later, their sister station in New York followed suit uh, um, and Hot 97 flipped from dance to hip hop as well. Pierre, is there a time in that process that you ever question your data? Because now you're guiding Rick and Jeff and this gigantic asset that they have. And mind you, it 
wasn't doing particularly well at the moment, and the ratings were certainly on the downswing, but it was still, I'm sure, a very profitable enterprise. And to actually make that suggestion to now let's flip this to a hip-hop station, were there ever internal discussions at Coleman going, man, what if we screw this up and we give them the wrong the wrong counsel? Or were you guys just really sure of it? Well, you know, what you do is you you don't just do a set of focus groups and make a major strategic decision. You know, you follow the focus group with a perceptual study where you're testing music artists, music montages, and you're validating that finding. The other thing is that they're, you know, internally at the station, there were these conversations going on is like, look, all these records are blowing up and they kind of don't fit our format. But the phones, like people are calling and asking for these records. So what do we do? And, you know, Hot 97, I remember one time being in a cab with Harry Lyles and and we were listening to the station and they were blending hip hop and dance records together. And I remember Harry looked at me as like, hey, you know, they got to They got to They got to pick a horse, you know, because they're they got dance records. They got hip hop. So right. It was multiple, you know, you could see the songs that were working and call out. You could, you could see it in the perceptual study. You saw it in the focus groups. Obviously there was a, there was like an AM radio station at the time in LA that was playing all hip hop, you know, KML, I think was starting to, yeah. in San Francisco was starting to, to go more. So you could definitely, there were multiple validations that all together said, hey, this is a key sound. And look, if you're an oldie station, you're going to ride that sound for the rest of your life. But if you are a contemporary hit radio station and the music is changing, as you point out, you can stick with what you've got and write it down. Yeah. Or you can say, look, we have got to adapt to the new sound and maybe the old sound and the new sound aren't compatible. So we've got to, you know, we've got to kind of pick, pick a horse. Sure. So you had multiple indicators that were guiding you, the focus group, the uh, perceptual, the, the phones, the music. So a lot of different things kind of coalesce to come together and go, all right, let's make this, let's make this hard right turn. Absolutely. And, you know, if you look at Emmis, you know, as a radio group, you know, a lot of the biggest innovations in radio programming came out of Emmis. I mean, they were the ones that really created the sports radio format. Um, there is a tremendous amount of open-mindedness and courage that Jeff Schmillian, the founder of Emmis, really infused into that company oh. and made people open-minded and made people market-focused and customer-centric and and gave people permission to say, well, you know what? There's this opportunity here and uh, it's different from what we're doing now, but it's okay. Let's, you know, so I think it was a, a company culture thing at Emmis that would take uh, marketplace intelligence like this and actually act on yeah. it. I could not agree more. And I've had the pleasure of, uh, of interviewing both Jeff and Rick. And I'm fortunate enough to call Rick a, a friend and in all, um, openness, transparency is the word I'm looking for. Uh, we do work with power today, which is no longer MS, but, uh, power I'm very proud to say is a client of ours. So is, um, hot 97. And we're really proud to work with, uh, with MS and Morello as, as well. And, uh, and we also work with MS on, uh, their company, um, uh, sound that brands their podcast company. So I'm 
really impressed with those guys and think they're brilliant programmers and just really uh, salt of the earth people as a whole. They are the ultimate client that you would ever want to work for because they were curious. They were not defensive. They were open to input and ideas. And even if they had a belief about something, they were very open-minded to say, well, the data is showing us this, the market is showing us this, we have to readjust. And it doesn't get any better than that when you have a client that is so customer-centric and willing to use uh, marketplace intelligence to make decisions. Sure. Were there ever times where you guys got it wrong? Um, there are always times when you put the right format on and it's not supported with enough marketing or the right marketing. So people don't become aware of it. Sure. Um, and, and that is the thing that I think is, you know, can, can make you just like, oh my God, when you know that I'm feeling a need in the marketplace, the, the music is awesome, but folks don't know that it exists or there's low awareness for it. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it doesn't translate, you know, into the ratings. Um, so definitely there are times when you realize like, this is not just about creating great content. You have to make people aware of it. It's funny you bring that up because a pet peeve of mine is we have account executives that go out and they're calling on clients all day long and we're explaining to clients how important it is to be on the air and how important marketing is and for all the things that I wholeheartedly agree with and it sounds like you do as well. But then we don't listen to our own gospel and we don't promote our radio stations like we should and give them the marketing that they deserve. And that's just an observation of mine and I'm not saying that's true of the whole industry as a whole, but I have seen that over and over again and it is frustrating to me when Johnny Kay, my mentor, was the program director of Coast in the 80s, he had a marketing budget of no joke of $4 million a year here in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. You could not get away from commercials with Dick Clark promoting Coast. You saw bus boards, you saw billboards. In fact, where the streets have no name, the U2 single that was filmed in don downtown Los Angeles, you watch that video and you'll see a bus drive by and it's got a coast billboard on the bus. And that is how you just could not get away from those ads. And he told me a story sometime in the late eighties, early nineties, they cut his budget from four to $3 million a year. And he almost quit over it. That's how upset he was. When I got let go at Clear Channel here in 2009, my marketing budget was $800,000 a year uh, for Los Angeles. And now that would be considered a gigantic budget by LA standards. And it is just a fraction of that. And they spend very little and are basically just expected to trade everything out. And I'm not I'm not calling out iHeart or anyone in particular. I just know that that is the case with stations in major markets all over the country. And I find that frustrating. It, it is frustrating. And, you know, as I said at the beginning of this call, what Coleman has taught the industry is that awareness drives cume and perceptions drive cume. And so, you know, we do have to figure out ways to build our brands. And even if it's with traded media, um, so be it. Anywhere we can build our brand, we should be focused on. And I would trade a contesting dollar for a brand building dollar, meaning I would much rather, instead of doing like direct marketing, and I would rather be spending my money to build awareness and interest 
rather than some contest. That's fast. I could do a whole podcast in of its, it, it, just on that subject, but that does, that makes sense. I've never heard it that way, but I am naturally attracted to, to brands. I'm a huge fan of, of Disney. I, I talk about that quite regularly in meetings here at Benstown. Um, as you can see here, I, I drink way too many Cokes, but I'm a huge <laughs> fan of Coke. But brands that are top of mind to me are so uh, a core part of my life and uh, have been for a long time. And I obviously, the, some of the, my favorite radio stations are big, gigantic brands that have been around for a long time. Yeah, and I see it with advertisers. So advertisers can do sales promotions, which is, you know, I have a deal, buy one, get one free, you know, that kind of like hurry, 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 there's a sale. That's the equivalent of doing a contest in radio. Or they could build their brand where they create advertising that is memorable and funny or entertaining that explains like who we are and what we do for a living. And that would be brand building. And all of the research, advertising effectiveness research says that long-term sales and profit is driven primarily by brand building. And that you can't contest your way to a brand. Would you say advertisers as a whole have gotten now too caught up and it was called per inquiry. And I know they call it something else now. I can't remember, but they're so caught up on getting that phone to ring or clicks on their website, whatever it may be. Has that become too big of a focus and are companies basically shortchanging themselves because they're not building a brand and they just care about the immediate gratification? There is a disease and it's called short-termism. <laughs> And, and what you have just described is what happens when literally you're just looking at short-term metrics, clicks today, clicks tomorrow, leads today, leads tomorrow. And it's where you're just what's called looking at the bottom of the funnel rather than the top of the funnel where you have awareness and interest and favorability. So this is a big issue with advertisers where they are so afflicted with short-termism, they're forgetting to build their brand. So just like a radio station will spend too much on contesting and short-term things and not say, wait a minute, I need to also build my brand. So th this is a big issue. And some of this has to do with metrics because there's so many uh, services that can give you short-term data on how many people went to your site or how many leads did I get today? There's a rule, which is a great rule. It's called the 1824-58 rule, 1824-58 rule. Uh -huh. And what it says is of the marketing that you are doing right now, only 18% of that effect will occur this month. Of the marketing you're doing right now, 24% will show up in month two to month five. And then 58% of your advertising is going to impact six months and beyond. So it's 18, 24, 58. So the, the point is, it's kind of like saying, uh, hey, I did 10 push-ups. Now I want to go to the doctor and see if I really got healthy. It's like, well, guess what? Yeah, you could do that, but it's probably going to take you six months of consistent day in, day out effort 
for you to get healthier. And it's the same thing with advertising, whether you're trying to build the brand of a radio station or of a retail advertiser. Most advertising takes place over an extended period of time. That makes so much sense, and thank you for explaining. I've never heard that rule before. I've read, uh, you know, a lot of books. I don't have nearly the intellect or the education that you have, but business fa- really fascinates me. And I've read time and time again that being first in and usually the first company to be very successful isn't the one that's going to be around in the long term. MySpace, for example, was the first, but yep. they imprinted very quickly and then unfortunately, I guess, blew up and then made way for Facebook and uh, other social medias to, you know, to come along. Um, companies want, or I think not even companies, but humans, we want instant gratification. We want to lose weight right away if we're on a diet. We want to get rich right away. We want things, and I completely agree with you that that's what these companies want, but in in the long term, they'll turn into a, to, to a MySpace because they're not building a brand that's built literally to last. It goes back to that that Jim Collins book, or yeah, Jim Collins built to last. They're building these companies to succeed right now, but for just a little tiny flash of, of time. Yeah, and and what the experts that study marketing effectiveness is, they're saying it's not just do all brand building or do all sales promotion or short-term tactics. You need a mix. And the two kind of godfathers of marketing effectiveness, Les Bennett and Peter Field, they say that the ideal mix is about 60-40. 60% of your marketing dollars generally should be towards brand building, and then 40% should be on short-term sales promotions. Awesome, man. I could talk about this all day long. I, I want to, if you were still working at Coleman, I would hire you now, Pierre. <laughs> so impressive. I want to move on, uh, but I could go on about this for, for the longest time. And thank you for uh, sharing that 182458 rule. You, at least in my mind, take another, well, this is even a bigger right-hand turn. How do you end up from Coleman to TiVo? As in TiVo, the recording device uh, yes. that would record, they were the first really kind of DVR. So I left Coleman actually to go back to Arbitron. Okay. So I had I left Coleman, went back to Arbitron, had a 15-year run, launched PPM, got that into the market. So you went back to Arbitron to help with them launching PPM, and which was a huge rollout. And that took years in and of itself, correct? Yep, yep. I could not have been happier when PPM came around because all of a sudden KBIG, which was always, you know, seven, eight, nine in the market, we were behind Coast and behind Kiss. And all of a sudden we like shoot up to two, three, you know, three, number two. And I remember getting like a sneak peek at the data and I'm like, oh my God. And I started, no joke, Pierre. I was getting bonuses that were just, you changed my <laughs> life. Absolutely changed my life. <laughs> well, listen, not, not everybody had your experience, right? Because every time you introduce a new methodology, it's, it's, it changes the rankings a little bit. I do remember I was at some industry event and I ended up in the elevator with Scott Shannon, who was at WPLJ. And just like, hey, big, you know, PLJ really benefited from from PPM and I remember Scott looking at me saying, now don't you go changing the PPM. <laughs> I like the PPM. I bet my bonuses were a fraction of what Scott Shannon's bonuses were. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. 
Oh, man. So what was that like as you're rolling that out and you had some people being big believers in it, such as myself, but then others being, you know, at least in their eyes, negatively impacted? How did you manage that just from a forward-facing standpoint? Well, change is always difficult. And, and you know, as humans, part of our brain wants improvement and enhancement and new change. And so for years, broadcasters said to, to Arbitron, you know, the diary is based on memory and people writing stuff down. You should have a passive electronic version of this. And and so Arbitron spent literally $100 million of R&D to test beyond belief, portable people meter, get it out into the marketplace. But then there's that other part of the human brain that says, oh, I don't like change. I know I told you that I wanted new and better, but this is going to be different. And so there was a lot of concern because stations that benefited from the line and the diary didn't exactly see the same, you know, kind of PPM line. So sure. it did cause, you know, a lot of anxiety, a lot of upheaval. I mean, you know, so it, because you go from a methodology that is based on perception of historical behavior to, actually what you were doing, you know, minute by minute. So you do, you do see some changes. And, uh, but I think at the end of the day, the industry realized that for the advertiser to be seen as having electronic real time, you know, not a recall based methodology, but actual behavior based methodology was what the industry really needed moving forward. Sure. I think there's no doubt, at least in my mind, it allowed from a programming standpoint for us to program far more effectively to get data that was far more up to date. And uh, we were able to see, you know, there at least before I left already now starting to see minute to minute data, which was really fascinating and something that uh, if you're in a diary market, you're largely flying blind. Uh, not that that is an effective measurement because it is, but it's certainly a different way to have to program. For sure, for sure. And and from an advertiser standpoint, PPM has unlocked the ability to do things on proving sales effect of radio that we could have never done uh, if we had stayed with diaries. For example, you know, you can now, and we offer these studies to advertisers now, where you can take a campaign and say, here are the people that were exposed to your ad. Now let's connect that exposure to their credit card data and let me show you how radio drove sales for your brand. And then I can actually, Nielsen can actually calculate the return on ad spend. You could never do that in a diary market because people only keep a diary for a week. Where in the PPM world, folks are in that panel for six months, nine months. And so our ability to kind of connect the dots between ad exposure and sales effect really has ushered in a new era of accountability for sure. radio. We can prove effect. Very interesting and love to chat longer with you about that, but I know we got to keep on mo moving this train forward. How do you make the shift from now Arbitron after your second run uh, into TiVo? So Arbitron had invested in the startup called, called TRA that was connecting uh, set-top data, TV set-top data to purchase data. Uh -huh. allowing big advertisers like P&G and big TV networks like CBS the ability to kind of look at their audience in a different way. Instead of men 2554, they could say, let's look at heavy tide purchasers. So it was kind of 
Instead of demographics, it was buyer graphics. So Arbitron invested. I got to sit on the board. I got to meet the management team. I ended up leaving Arbitron, going to work for TRA. We got acquired by TiVo. And it really taught me about network TV and how network TV uses sales effect and uh, result studies to prove their impact to advertisers and secure bigger investments. And so when I came to Westwood, I really took a lot of that learning on how TV networks measure impact and brought it to brought it to radio. Talking about a brand, I still refer, if I'm going to DVR something, I still say I'm going to TiVo it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Unfortunately, the, they got the word, but they, they never became kind of the, uh, you know, the DVR for, for the world. Um, yeah. And that another, they were, I think the first in with that, right? Were there other, they were. yeah. And that's another example of the first in not succeeding. What they didn't realize, I think, because they were startup guys from Silicon Valley, is that the company that owned the relationship uh, to the TV viewer was the cable company. Right. And, and their business model was, oh, we'll just sell this thing to consumers and then that'll we'll, you know, rock it to prominence. But it's really the, they should have earlier on done a deal with the cable companies yeah. and said, use our box, integrate it into your solution. Um, but that's sometimes what happens when you're kind of a newcomer into a space and you don't understand kind of the ecosystem and who really owns the relationship with the consumer. Sure. Fascinating. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That does. I was a huge, I was an early adopter on that one. I also DivX and that went away as well. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so how do you end up at uh, Cumulus uh, Westwood One where you're now the uh, chief insights officer and the uh, president of the Audio Active Group? So Headhunter called me up and said, Cumulus is looking for a chief operating officer. And I told the Headhunter, you know, that's n not an exciting role for me, you know, kind of worrying week in, week out about revenue and, you know, hitting our numbers and this and that. And I said, the Headhunter, I said, you know, what they need to be doing is proving impact to their advertisers. And they need to be doing a better job of telling the story of radio to America's blue chip brands. Because as an industry, radio historically has not done a good job of proving impact and using data to make you know its case. And the headhunter said, hey, go out to breakfast with Lou. Tell him that. So I did. And Lou said, let's do that. That's a great wow. idea. And so, uh, you know, I was like, well, this is awesome because I've always felt even during my Arbitron days, I really tried to produce studies. Like we, I started the infinite dial study when I was at Arbitron because I really always felt that radio needed to tell its story better to agencies and advertisers. So, you know, for the last six years, I've basically been working with advertisers to measure their impact, test their creative, uh, prove that radio drove sales or radio drove sales effect, and also tell bigger stories to big brands about audio and the importance of radio and the importance of podcast. I 
think it's so fantastic that that role was created and that you were the one who sh- helped shape that because again and again in transparency, obviously close partners with Cumulus and Westwood One. We've worked with you guys now for uh, for a decade, which is blows my mind. It's already been such a long time. But I think what you do is certainly not only relevant uh, for Westwood One and Cumulus, but for the whole industry as a whole. 90% of what I read is absolutely applicable to the entire radio industry. And I'm so grateful that you do what you do. And I agree completely that I think sometimes we're our own worst enemies in this, in this business and that we're focused on trying to sometimes compete and destroy each other versus these much bigger issues that we have uh, with listenership. And so I think every one of your pieces that you put out uh, really just makes so much sense. And do you feel like it is printing with the advertisers and with the agencies? Yeah. So, you know, our CEO, Mary Berner, uh, Suzanne Grimes, who runs Westwood One and is the EVP of marketing, they recognized, I think, early on that it's not that radio has, with advertisers, bad impressions. They realized that radio has no impressions. In other words, when major brands are thinking about media, audio rarely comes up. So what they recognized is, hey, we need to be um, uh, selling audio first. We got to get audio in consideration. We got to get audio in the media plan. And once we do that, then, of course, you know, we'll make the sales pitch for Westwood or Cumulus. And so they very early on realized that, that we needed to improve our visibility with major brands. And instead of doing it with a kind of self-absorbed sales pitch for our network or our stations, that we had to first sell the value of audio. And it's been working. You know, I think you look at pharma, which is as a category, has not been using radio up until three years ago. It's now one of the fastest growing ad categories in radio. The spend has almost doubled over the last four years. That's great. Um, so it, it's starting to work. Now, has podcast helped make audio hot? You betcha. Because that's something that is a sexy new thing. And generally, agencies and advertisers like the sexy thing. And for many years, audio didn't have the sexy thing. Well, now we do with podcasts. So podcast is getting us in the room. And it's getting us in the conversation. And are we able to leverage that conversation? We're getting our, our, our foot in the door with podcasting. And then are we able to say, hey, and you should really look at radio as well in those conversations? No doubt. Because what happens is podcasting gets you in the door. And then the question comes, well, how do I scale this? How do I get more reach? Well, okay. You can do that with this thing called AMFM radio that, by the way, according to Nielsen, is America's you know number one mass reach media. So yes, podcasting gets you in the door and then the conversation talk gets to scale and reach and, you know, that's Q radio. Nielsen, who you have a tremendous amount of experience with, obviously with Arbitron and then Arbitron was bought by Nielsen has had a lot of uh, announcements over the last few weeks, uh, first being that they're going to be bought by a consortium of private equity groups. Will that be a good thing, do you think, in the long term uh, for Nielsen as opposed to being a publicly traded company? Yes, it's going to be my opinion, and I don't have any insider knowledge, but um, I think it's a good thing. Going private lets you 
make necessary investments that are substantial and needed without the public market pressures. And so there's a lot of work that Nielsen has to do in audio to merge digital data sets with their panel data sets and to create um, uh, unification around identity. And, you know, those are big ticket items. And so I'm excited because I think this is going to give them the ability to make the investments they need to kind of create product enhancements that maybe the public markets would not have been as excited or interested in. They also just recently announced their wearables uh, that will eventually, I think, replace the meter itself. And from what I can gather, the wearables are being adapted and people want to wear, they're actually using them for longer amounts of time. Is that your understanding as well? Yeah. Just last week, they did a client you know, webinar and the carry times are much longer, um, which is exciting. Interestingly, the radio listening didn't go up as much. So what it means is, you know, the PPM was actually doing a pretty good job of capturing most, you know, American radio listening. But clearly, the the fact that the wearable is getting more usage, oh, I didn't understand is, that. So it was the the person was wearing the wearable a longer, longer. amount of time than they were wearing yep. the meter, but it was still uh, picking up the radio for about the same amount of time. Am I understanding yes. that now? I understand. Yep. I, when I saw yep. that headline, yep. I'm like. Great, but it doesn't necessarily mean that our AQH, our TSL is going to go up. Yep, yep. Uh, but listen, we want people to wear the device. We knew that with women, they don't necessarily have a place to clip a pager. So the fact that this is easier to wear and and not, it, like a Fitbit, I mean, that, you know, amen to that. And it's not as heavy, not as clunky. But more importantly, um, the older PPM uh, has supply chain issues. You know, those are legacy parts, legacy sure. chips. And, you know, we need to get the panels kind of post-COVID back in shape. We need to get the samples back on target. And the way to do that is roll that wearable meter out as quickly as possible so we can get these, you know, get the panels back. So we've got in this day and age uh, podcasting, which is incredibly hot, like we just talked about, obviously the DSPs, uh, Spotify, Pandora, uh, uh, doing well, uh, legacy media, um, such as all these radio stations. We're all coexisting right now and, and uh, are, are owned by, by similar companies and so forth and, uh, and kind of working across these platforms. Where do you see legacy radio a decade from now? Well, I think what's interesting is I think we're going to see more streaming of legacy radio. You know, we are working on a, a study that we're going to be releasing later this week that shows streaming as a percentage of AM, FM has really started to grow. Um, according to Share of Ear, six years ago, streaming was 8% of radio, and it really hadn't changed for about 15 years. It's now 14% of AM, FM listening. So streaming is actually bigger than all listening on the AM dial. Wow. So I think, I think what we're going to see is, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, streaming is going to take on uh, a much bigger portion of radio listening. Now, what's funny right now is Nielsen is going to be releasing this month how much streaming is going on by market. Okay. They've never released this data before. Now, on average, according to Nielsen of persons 12 plus or so, about 
of radio listening is streaming. But when you go by market, there's wide variation. There are some markets where 20% of total radio listening is streaming, 20%. There's some other markets where it's only 6%. Jesus, so, a big chasm. That is a huge, you know, that's like triple, like the, the, so I, I think the next 10 years, you know, we're really going to be digging into this and saying, why are some markets seeing, you know, like literally one out of every five tuning minutes happening by a stream versus other markets. So I think that's going to be something that we're really going to be paying attention to. And if there's so much growth in streaming as programmers and brand stewards, we're really going to be asking the question, Let's make sure our stream sounds as good as it can be. That absolutely makes sense. The recent uh, fall book just came out. Um, what did you see uh, since the pandemic? Is the radio listening starting to, uh, has it fully recovered yet, or do we still have a little bit to go? We've recovered a tremendous amount. You know, if, if you go back to um, kind of March of 20, you know, we've recovered most of the cue. But what is interesting is that the audience recovery has differed by income level. Interesting. The higher the income, the greater the audience recovery. So, you know, if you look at QM 75,000 plus, our QM for American radio is actually bigger than it was pre-pandemic. But then you go, you know, lower income and you get, let's say, under 25,000 uh, income. And... You know, we still haven't yet recovered that. And so you say, okay, why is that? Is that because there's so much turbulence in the job market? Is that because there's turbulence with the commuting? I don't have all the answers, but, you know, we have seen a strong recovery in reach. No doubt there's still a portion of American consumers, American workers that are still working from home. If you look at Nielsen studies, if you look at the Federal Reserve commuter data, it's around 8% of the American workforce that used to commute and is still working at home. And so the question is, what's going to happen with that 8% in the next year or two? And I think it's going to be a mixed bag. I think some of them are going to be back to work. I think some of them are going to be hybrid. And I think some of them are going to be like, you know what, I can do this job uh, from home. So I don't, sure. I don't think we're going to totally claw back all of that 8%, but there's something also that's going on that's very exciting. Something that the um, Labor Department calls workforce participation rate, which is a, a very simple percentage. What percent of American adults are actually in the workforce? Okay. And we every month that goes by, we are getting closer and closer and closer to getting the workforce participation rate that we had pre-pandemic. We're, we're not. We're probably about ninety percent recovered, so we still got some improvement to go. But obviously, you know, look, radio is the soundtrack of the American worker. Sure. And so the more workers we have, the yep. more commuting we have, yeah. the more you know, radio listening we have. So that makes sense. That completely That's something makes to sense. keep an eye on. Pierre, I know this was supposed to be mostly about you, and a lot of it was about you, but uh, I couldn't help myself to ask you a bunch of questions just about the industry and that thank you so much for your time that you so eloquently answered because you were just a wealth of knowledge. But I'm going to bring it back around to you. Um, I just want to know a little bit more. What's your favorite band? <laughs> 
Well, you know what? This is going to throw you for a loop, Frank Sinatra. I Frank am Sinatra. a. I love the Great American Songbook, and um, uh, he is to me, you know, a genius. And uh, uh, you know, I have a whole playlist devoted to him. So wow, that's were your parents Sinatra fans? You know what? I I, I think I stumbled upon that because um, I'm kind of a history buff and aficionado, and and I just have always gravitated to. Um, Yes, I love top forty, and yes, I love hip hop. But that's that's my go to. What's your favorite food? Mexican. Oh, mine, um, mine too. Mine too. So when I would when I would go do those Power One Hundred Six uh, music tests and focus groups, they would always take me to. Uh, I bet I could put El Torito. Or, there's I, an El Torito, but there's also yes. a Paquito Moss right across the street from Power. Yeah, which no, is my it, favorite. It was El- I think it was El Torito. That was like, (laughs) we would do that, then I'd hop on the red eye back to the East Coast. (laughs) What's your favorite sport? Uh, You know, my new favorite sport, courtesy of my daughter, is crew, rowing. Oh, okay. And and she is uh, a a superstar rower. Oh, congratulations. uh, So I am like, have learned a lot in the last couple of years about this sport. And uh, so, yeah, so I'm I'm, I'm a, a newly arrived fan. Pierre, thank you so much for taking the time to be on with me today. Can't uh, express enough just how grateful I am to, A, be able to work with you at uh, Cumulus and Westwood One, but B, everything you do for the industry, I think is so incredibly valuable. And uh, thank you for doing what you do. Well, thank you guys for, you know, shining a light on this great industry. and, And thanks for the opportunity to come on today. Have a great evening, my friend. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Chachi Loves Everybody. If you like the show, we hope you'll leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This has been a Benstown Podcast production, hosted and researched by Dave Chachi Dennis. Executive producer, Kevin Horton. Produced and edited by Tom Green. Show coordinator, Juliana Parisi and Laura Keene.